Welcome, everybody, to the 40th episode, episode 40 of Spurbs Herbs. Today, we're going to be having an interesting podcast on a very widely used herb, aloe vera, or in Chinese, it's lu hui. And again, I apologize for my Chinese pronunciation, but that doesn't stop me from trying. And without further ado, let's get into today's episode. I have a couple questions before we go. Have you ever wanted to give herbs to a patient on drugs? Do you have the knowledge and tools to do that effectively and safely? I am finishing up my drug herb webinar series, which gives you real-world tools to answer these questions. As a beginning, the first course will give you an in-depth overview of how drugs and by the same token how herbs work on the body. The second course focuses on drug-herb interactions and gives you a unique, powerful, real-world tool for assessing them. This knowledge should be in every practitioner's toolkit, so I'm going to give you these first two courses, six hours of CEUs for 30% off their all, regular already low price. I, I price my, my stuff on the low end already to begin with, and then I give you a sale on top of that. In order to do this, to get that 30% off, just go to www.integrativemedicinecouncil.org. That's Integrative Medicine Council, C-O-U-N-C-I-L.org and put a slash 32 at the end of it. So that's integrativemedicinecouncil.org slash 32 and get your discount right now. But please hurry. This is a limited time offer and we want you to get that 30% off. So thank you. So today, this episode started as an exploration of an herb of the world. And then it became an interesting look at an herb with very different uses, depending on very different preparations and used in many traditional herbal, in, in many herbal traditions. We're going to explore the fascinating aspects of aloe vera. And of course, we're going to look at something a little different. Galen, as a founder of Western medicine, we're going to talk about him briefly. It's going to be interesting. So let's get going. So because today's herb was widely distributed by the Arabs and Persians, and, and I mistakenly, before I started this, thought it was an Arab uh, herb. It turns out it's probably origins are probably more in, the, in Africa. Um, I wanted to talk about one of the greatest medical doctors that ever existed, Avicenna or Ibn Sina. Now, I know he's a great doctor. I've read small portions of him, but I don't know what really made him so great. So I was excited about getting to Avicenna. I wanted to learn about this. This is a name that I wanted, I had heard, and I knew a little bit about, but I wanted to learn a lot more about. So I was excited to get into Avicenna. However, as I did some preliminary research, I realized I can't really talk about him without talking about someone else, and that is Galen. Galen influenced him, and, and he took Galen's medicine and went with it. So I can't really talk about Avicenna until I talk about Galen. We have briefly talked about Hippocrates on a prior podcast, and he is considered the quote-unquote father of medicine. I hate that quote-unquote. It should be quote, father of medicine, unquote. But people say quote-unquote, but there you go, father of medicine. He wasn't. Well, in some ways, I do think he was the father of medicine, especially in terms of medical ethics, possibly philosophically. And I think he was brilliant as a marketing person, <laughs> at least uh, through the, the ages. Um, but 
he did not do a lot for actually curing disease. They just the, His ideas and philosophy were there, but the therapeutics and anatomy were not there. So he couldn't do a lot of cures. And so very successful in some ways, not very successful in other ways. But Galen took what Hippocrates said and actually created useful anatomy and therapeutics. And he is widely considered the man who really started medicine. Galen of Pergamon was born in 130 CE. So to give you some context, I believe uh, Hippocrates, without looking it up, was about 300 BC. Uh, so this is about 400 years later uh, than, than, than Hippocrates. He wrote several books, the most famous being the anatomical book De Usu Partium, or Partium, I don't know how to pronounce Latin. And this translates as the uses of the parts of the body. So this was a foundational book on anatomy. And when I say foundational, I mean this was the anatomical book probably for near 1,500 years, all the way through the, the Middle Ages and into the beginnings. It wasn't until the Renaissance that it started being questioned. I mean, this was the book. He established observation and experimentation as foundations of medicine and established the concept that anatomical accuracy could be the basis of understanding disease. He was a doctor to the Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius and others. And basically, he single-handedly pretty much created the scientific method and did many brilliant, I mean, just genius experiments and, and foundational experiments to understand human anatomy and physiology. I'll just give you a couple really cool ones. You know, they, they thought that the pulse was actually uh, by the arteries, not by the heart. And so he, he tied off a portion of a, a dog's foot and isolated a portion so it, wasn't, it, it was isolated from the rest of the body. And so if it was the arteries causing the pulse, you should have been able to feel the pulse, but you couldn't. And as soon as you release the ligatures, the, the ties, then you can feel the pulse again. And so that pointed to the heart. He thought the heart was the reason for the pulse. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Another one was they thought the bladder created urine, not the kidneys. So he actually, he did vivisections. He did things like this. And some of them are not what we're, we don't have the stomach for. Modern times, he, he tied off ur the ureters. And at many different locations, all along the ureter, and it didn't matter where along the ureter that he tied it off, there was no urine production. So that indicated that it was actually the kidneys that produced urine, not the bladder. So pretty brilliant stuff. And, and that's just the tip of the iceberg on what this guy did. Brilliant. By the way, he knew he was brilliant. He was incredibly vain and, and difficult to work with, and that comes down uh, almost 2,000 years later. So, I mean, this... He was a genius, and he knew he was a genius. However, he often violated the principles of the scientific method in order to uphold his view of a creator. So this is when Christianity is starting to come into to, uh, Rome, and so uh, he was, you know, probably a proto-Christian, I would say. He wasn't fully into Christianity, but he did believe in a God and a creator, a single one as opposed to the the pantheon of Roman gods. And so he had his worldview. This is one of the, the dings against him. He, was, he, he, he did the scientific method, but he warped it when it didn't really fit in with what he perceived. So he thought his philosophical thoughts 
about how sh things should be were just as important as the science in front of them, and he would bend it a little bit, which of course I think is is actually an argument you can make against scientists today, not not universally, but at times. And so, um, you know, there, he said a lot of questionable stuff as well. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant stuff that today we know are absolutely true. He was the first to discover it, but also um, some some question, very questionable stuff. So numerous brilliant ex experiments and insights were balanced by fundamental errors. One of these uh, examples is the Reet Mirabili, a coiled network of blood vessels near the carotid arteries, was there to actually slow down blood flow and allow the start of conversion from the vital pneuma into psychic pneuma, concepts no longer considered real in medicine. So um, he had this idea of pneuma, which was the vital force. Um, if you want to say chi or, or, or um, prana, you can in this context, and there were different types of it. And this, this piece was very important, which of course it, it really wasn't anatomically, it did something completely different. And his anatomical, uh, as I mentioned earlier, his anatomical observations remained basically unchanged until the 16th century and the Renaissance, with a few exceptions. One of those being Avicenna, so I'm, I'm excited to learn more about him. These exceptions lead us back to Avicenna or Ibn Sina, who was an important medical and philo philosophical thinker of Persia and is still revered today. Uh, he's considered, I, I was reading, the national heroes in many countries. We'll talk about him on our next episode of Spurbs Herbs. And with that under our belt, let's begin our discussion of aloe vera. So aloe vera comes from, well, it's an interesting thing. This is a, so the family it comes from, according to Bensky. So remember, Bensky um, is one of our foundational texts. It's, it's like the, the complete materia medica or herbal um, materia medica. It is sort of, in most Chinese medical schools, it's the textbook for, for single herbs. There's another one that we also use, Chen Chen, but I think Bensky is used more often than Chen Chen's is. And that was written in 2004, and it says this herb is part of the Liliaceae family, which we've talked about previously on, on a few herbs, actually, more than one herbs. But Wikipedia actually says it's part of the Asphodelaceae family and its subfamily Asphodeloideae. And, you know, since aloe was under the Liliaceae family, it was considered part of the Liliaceae family when Bensky was written and was revised after the book was written. We can safely say it's currently in the Asphodelaceae family. So if you look at older texts, it will say it's part of the Liliaceae family, but it's actually part of the Asphodelaceae family. I'm getting better and better every time I, I pronounce these words. The species specifically is aloe vera, uh, so we have that as a species, but it, it, it is synonymous. With, there's a ton of other species, species names by other botanists, by different systems. So aloe vera is kind of considered the, the, the name, but you will often see it with other names. And, and one of the big ones is aloe barbadensis, uh, mill or miller, that's the botanist who, who classified it. That's very commonly used as a synonym to aloe vera. Other synonyms are aloe indica royal, aloe perfoliata, elvar, vera, vera, aloe africana, aloe arbor, arborensis, arbor vulgaris lamb, aloe perii, and aloe spicata. So these are all different 
versions of of the same species that you know this happens it all narrow down eventually there's one other species Allopharyx miller it's a different but similar species and 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 actually um, like Bensky actually includes it under this heading of Lu Hui, which is the Chinese uh, term for it. But it's a specific type, and it has it, it doesn't really discuss different medicinal properties. So I'm not sure if it's just a substitute or if it is so it can be used like aloe vera. It's not technically aloe vera, uh, but it comes up a lot in these discussions uh, when we talk about aloe vera. Most parts of the plant can be medicinal. Other names for this plant include Chinese aloe, Cape aloe, though one source says that is actually that Allopharyx miller that we just mentioned, Barbados aloe, uh, again, from the, from the Latin name, uh, one of the synonyms. In Chinese, it's Kula Suo Lu Hui, that's specific to this, this species. Can also be called Xiangdan, Japanese called Rokai, uh, Korean no, no Hoi or No Ho. Uh, and then Ayurvedic has several uh, potential names for this, including Kumari, which apparently means a young girl virgin because it's going to give you the strength of a young woman or a virgin. Uh, Grita Kumari and uh, Kanyasara, these are all Ayurvedic names for uh, this herb as well. So uh, we're going to talk about Ayurvedic medicine. This is definitely one of the, the uses for this, this herb. They, they use it in that tradition. Aloe derived from Latin means from unknown origin. And vera means true, so uh, it, it basically is saying it's the true herb from unknown origin, basically. I don't know how that fits into context, but there we go. Let's talk a little bit about that Asphodiaceae uh, family. Uh, that family includes about 40 genera and 900 known species. So, you know, not the biggest, but certainly not the smallest of families. Many plants are used in, in this family are used as ornamentals or for cut uh, flowers, so cut to uh, be given to somebody. And of course, aloe is used medicinally and for cosmetic purposes is often used, added to cosmetics, though the FDA kind of cracked down on that in the last few years. So uh, it's being used less for that, at least in the US. The members are very diverse of the family. The flowers are typically born on a leafless stalk which arises from a ba basal rosette of leaves with individual flowers having jointed stalks. A disc of woody tissue, uh, known as a hypostase, is present at the base of the ovule. So the ovule, of course, is the female uh, uh, sex organ of the plant. And there are three subfamilies. We already talked about the Asphodeloidea, which is where our herb fits into, but there's also the Xantho Roeoidea. I'm going to get these. I tried. Uh, I, I tried practicing before. Uh, oh, and the third subfamily is uh, the Hemerocalidoidea. There we go, the Hemerocalidoidea. There you go. I did it in my head, and of course, it never sounds as good when you do it in your head. I should be doing practicing out loud. So. All right, so those are the families, uh, the family and the subfamily for aloe vera. But right off the bat, we, we, we run into some difficulties when explaining this herb. In Chinese medicine, we primarily use the dried, bitter, yellow latex derived from the outer leaf of the aloe plant. Often, I will refer to that as the resin because that's what it is. It's a resin. It's cooked down into a hard rock, basically. It's brittle rock, but it's a hard rock. 
In other traditions, the gel of the plant is considered medicinal, as is the fresh juice. And, and the gel can actually be freeze-dried freeze and made into a powder as well. Uh, as well as, you know, so that powder is one thing, but so can the resin be made into a powder. So powder alone doesn't tell us exactly where it comes from. And all of these can have very different medicinal actions. Add in the different herbal traditions with different uses of this herb, and it gets complicated fast. And you mix in science into this. A lot of traditional uses hold up, and a lot of them don't. So uh, we're going to go from there and, and see what happens. But we will do our best and parsing this all out as we go through today. So let's start talking about Chinese medicine. And as you know, I have three or four main texts that I use. Uh, we already discussed Bensky, and the other one is Chen Chen. That's the other one that I uh, already mentioned. They both say this herb is a purgative as a subcategory uh, under the heading, the, the chapter of downward draining herbs. So purgative, of course, means um, something that causes you to pass stool. Brandon Wiseman, it's, it's similar. It's basically the same thing, but they translate it slightly differently. And they say it is an offensive precipitant medicinal subcategory under the draining precipitant medicinals. So they use a, a more... Uh, uh, Wiseman created a dictionary to help translate Chinese words into English and make them so when we saw these English words, we would know what the Chinese word was. And so it's, it's actually a technical feat, and it was it's brilliant, actually. Um, but neither Bensky and his team or Chen Chen use that technical, those technical terms. So it sounds a little bit odd to the ear what Brandon Wiseman say, but I think technically it's more correct. Um, so it's, it's an interesting, you can go and translate, you can look up, they have the Practical Dictionary of Chinese Medicine, and then it, it's useful to figure out exactly where these terms came from and what they specifically mean. So under Chinese medicine, we are talking about the concentrated outer cortex of the plant, not the gel or the juice. All of our reference texts say this herb is bitter and cold and enters the large intestine and liver. Bensky says it and his team says it also enters the stomach, so not just the large intestine liver, but also the stomach channels. All three sources agree that this herb should not be decocted, and instead used powdered or in capsules. Bensky said, and his team say the dosage is 1.5 to 4.5 grams. Chen Chen say it's 0.6 to 1.5 grams, so a lot lower dose than what's in Bensky's. And Brown and Wiseman say one to two grams. So this is definitely a lower dose herb. Most of our herbs are six to nine grams per dose uh, in Chinese medicine. So this is definitely a lower dose herb. And, uh, you know, basically between all of these, we should be on the lower end of dosing, on the quite lower end uh, of dosing of this herb. According to Bensky and his team, it was first mentioned in the Materia Medica of the Jiayou era, or Jiayou Ben Sao, in 1061 CE, Chen Chen say it was first mentioned in the Materia Medica of Medicinal Properties, the Yaoxing Ben Sao, in 600 CE. So there's a 450-year difference between uh, these two books as to when it was discovered. But what that does tell you is not one of the, the, the first herbs um, discussed in Chinese medicine, but it happened a, while, a long while ago and, and has been in use for quite a bit of time. Bensky and his team says it drains fire and guides out accumulation, clears heat and cools the liver. And 
kills parasites and strengthens the stomach, which is interesting because when we talk about the concerns, if you have stomach deficiency, you shouldn't take this herb. So I, you know, Bensky adds in the stomach, the others do not. So I'm kind of tending towards not. Um, Chen Chen says it purges downward, clears liver fire, and kills parasites. Brandon Wiseman similarly say it drains and precipitates, clears the liver, and kills worms. And then Zhao and Chen, this is the book on, on uh, determining quality of herbs, but they also have functions as well, say it clears liver heat and frees the stool. So we're going to find out that's a big aspect of the herb in general, especially this outer cortex for, as a laxative. Holmes also throws in his two cents. So Holmes um, wrote The Energetics of Western Herbs, uh, and that's in two volumes. It's an interesting um, sort of cross between Western medicine and Chinese medicine. And in this case, it's just the straight Chinese medicine, but he has his own little spin. So he says the functions for this herb include promotes bowel movement and resolves accumulation and promotes menstruation. So that's an interesting addition to this, not in the other herbs, though the liver is involved in menstruation, so maybe the fact that it cools liver can help promote menstruation. It stimulates digestion and appetite and relieves fullness, and it clears parasites, promotes tissue repair, and reduces inflammation and tumors. Uh, while aloe gel is not part of, of many herbal traditions, it is it, well, it is part, excuse me, it is part of many herbal traditions, it is not part of traditional Chinese medicine. Having said this, Holmes does include it in the Energetics of Western Herbs, uh, volume two, uh, and discusses some Chinese medical properties of the gel. So this is his translation of the sort of more non-Chinese medicine, I'm not going to say just Western medicine, but more non-Chinese. And he says that the gel is bland, slightly salty and cool and enters the stomach and lungs and belongs in the enrich the yin and moisten dryness category of herbs. He continues to talk about the functions of the gel and include moistens dryness and relieves irritation, reduces inflammation and infection, promotes tissue repair, benefits the skin and stops bleeding. Those are all I think very much in line with with uh, other you know, non-Chinese uses of, of the gel. It resolves mucus damp and relieves congestion, and it stops lactation. So that's an interesting one, it stops lactation. Now, as we get into the cautions, we're gonna find that we probably shouldn't, definitely the resin we should not use with breastfeeding. Um, this with the gel, unless you're looking to stop lactation, is probably a good reason to not use it during breastfeeding. I, the, the, the gel either. So that's Chinese medicine. Let's stay, take a step into Ayurvedic medicine. So the gel, either fresh or powdered, is used in Ayurvedic medicine. Its energetics are bitter, astringent, pungent, sweet, and cooling. The gel balances all three doshas, while the powder, except in very low dosages, will aggravate vata. Remember, and in, in, you know, this isn't about you know, the basics of Ayurvedic medicine, which we've gone over in the past, um, but we, we have three major doshas, the, um, vata, pitta, and kapha, and uh, the idea is to balance those doshas. So this is good for balancing the doshas. It works on all tissues and help the circulatory, digestive, female reproductive, and excretory systems. 
is considered an alterative, which tends to restore normal health. A bitter tonic, so that's again helping our, our, our help. A rejuvenative, which again helps restore uh, our health. These are all slightly different, but very similar in, in their functions. It's also an amenagogue, which helps promote and regulate menstruation. A purgative, so even the gel is considered purgative under Ayurvedic, and I think it is considered purgative and helpful for, for um, digestion and, and stools uh, in other traditions. And it's also a vulnerary, which assists in healing of wounds. That's the term for that, an older term um, for that, for assisting in healing of wounds. And we're going to find out, especially topically, it's very useful for that. Indications under uh, as as an Ayurvedic medicine include fever, constipation, obesity, inflammatory skin conditions, swollen glands, conjunctivitis. So that is inflammation of the conjunctiva of the eye, bursitis. So that's inflammation of the bursa in our joints, jaundice and yellowing, hepatitis. So that's inflammation and or and or infection of the liver. And our next ones are enlarged liver or spleen, herpes. Uh, venereal diseases, amenorrhea, which means not having menstruation, dysmenorrhea, meaning painful menstruation, menopause, vaginitis, so that's inflammation of the vagina, tumors, and intestinal worms. And, uh, and according to Frawley and Ladd, aloe gel is a wonderful tonic for the liver and spleen, for the blood and the female reproductive system. Aloe regulates sugar and fat metabolism and tonifies all the agnes, agnes, the digestive enzymes of the body. And at the same time, it reduces pitta. It is a rejuvenative for pitta and for the uterus. Two teaspoons of it can be taken three times a day with a pinch of turmeric as a general tonic. And they continue, aloe powder is a powerful laxative that must be used in small amounts. The powder's taste is nauseating, and so it should be taken in capsules. So that's from uh, one book on Ayurvedic medicine. I have another one, um, and it didn't include it in that one, so I don't know if it's a super commonly used herb in Ayurvedic medicine, but it is certainly used. As you can see, there's lots of uses for it in Ayurvedic medicine. So traditional uses, other traditions... Uh, let's talk about those in general. Uh, one of my sources is the PDR for herbal medicines. That's the PDR stands for physician death reference. So the title of the book is just PDR. Um, and the, the traditional PDR is all about pharma, uh, pharmaceuticals and drugs, uh, but they do put out one for herbal medicines. And they say this herbs medicinal part is the dried juice of the leaves and that it has antibacterial, antiviral, anti-inflammatory, Lax and laxative effects and says it is minimally effective in treating acne, has some effect in psoriasis, is effective in healing herpes simplex sores, that's, that's genital herpes or, or mouth herpes, oral herpes, and leg and pressure sores or ulcers, so sort of leg and pressure ulcers, so it's good in that, and no effect in radiation-induced skin toxicity or irritable bowel syndrome, both small study with an N of 44, so that means 44 subjects, showed positive effects in ulcerative colitis. So interesting that it didn't work in irritable bowel syndrome, but it does um, potentially work in inflammatory bowel sy syndrome, at least in ulcerative colitis uh, in that case. Though uh, something else said the other type of, of inflammatory bowel 
syndrome is IBA disease is Crohn's uh, disease, and, and one source said don't use it in Crohn's. It, it'll irritate Crohn's. So interesting that it's helpful in ulcerative colitis. Uh, they continue to say it is approved by the Commission E. We've talked about Commission E briefly. Previously, this was a commission done by the, um, the, the uh, Europe, by Europe, and uh, basically they approved herbs or disapproved them. And so a Commission E approval is a good thing, and it is approved. Uh, they said it has an unproven use for evacuation release relief in the presence of anal fissures after recto-anal operations. Um, but in general, it's approved for, for sale and use in Europe. Holmes says this herb is good for tissue trauma, uh, serious dermatitis, burns, leg ulcers, and a variety of dental problems. That's what they say, a variety of dental problems. Holmes says, not they. They want a singular. As mentioned earlier, this is a widely used herb. An article, The History of Aloe Vera, discusses its use in China and Sumeria from 3000 BCE. Um, I want to take this article with a little bit of a grain of salt. It, it is trying to sell aloe vera, and generally um, it said there was written evidence of this. Well, China, there's not a lot of written evidence from 3000 BCE. So right there, I'm a little suspect of this article. But it did kind of open up a little bit um, to the world. The Egyptians at the time of the pharaohs called it the plant of immortality, and a papyrus has been found describing its anti-inflammatory and pain-relieving effects. In Arabic culture, aloe vera has been known since ancient times as the flower of the desert. The ancient Greeks and Romans said it heals wounds, boils, eye conditions, cares for the skin, prevents hair loss, and alleviates genital ulcers. And Holmes, uh, which is that, that energetics of Western herbs, says this herb was originally used in indigenous African medicine. So um, he said this is actually an African herb originally and that it's spread around the world from there. And um, there was some interesting stuff. I didn't get into it too much saying that uh, it was brought to the U.S. with the slave trade and widely used in the U.S. and even adopted by, by many Native American tribes as, as, medicine, as medicine as well. So again, very widely used herb in, in, in general and for a lot of different reasons. So preparations and good quality of this. So as we discussed, aloe vera is prepared in many different forms, including the resin of the outer cortex, the fresh juice, the gel, and as a powder. And these pre preparations can have widely different medical uses. Holmes gets into using it as a tincture, which is an alcohol extraction uh, of the herb. Um, so there's lots of different ways to use this herb. According to Bensky, good quality resin, so that's the outer cortex resin, has an intense aroma and is water-soluble without foreign matter or sand in the sediment. And Zhao, Zhao and Chen, which is a textbook on the quality of herbs, say good quality is black, green in color, brittle, lustrous, and has a potent aroma and taste. I just want to uh, take a moment and, and give you my own little story on taste. Sorry which was I, I had a, a friend in my classes as we were doing herb classes in my master's program of oriental medicine, uh, Andy Rosenfarb. He's an acupuncturist uh, as well as a naturopathic doctor at this point. And uh, he's in New Jersey. 
but he and I, uh, we, we had packets of, of the herbs because back then we actually, in order to pass California's state board, we had to be able to identify the herb um, uh, visually. So they would give us a bunch of herbs and then we had to write down what those herbs were. They no longer do that as part of the licensing exam, but for many years, for decades, it was that. So we had to learn the individual herbs. So we had packets of all the herbs as we're going through and learning herbs in our class and our teachers lecturing us about the herbs. We have the books and we have the actual herbs in ourselves. The dried, I was going to say fresh herbs, but they're usually dried, so they're not fresh. So we had a little piece of this aloe vera. And this is probably, I don't know, I I don't know if it was our second uh, tri-semester or towards the end of our first semester. I think it was probably in our second tri-semester. And we had, he and I, every time would take would taste a little bit of the herb uh, that we had. We figured, hey, if we're going to be prescribing this to our patients, we should have some experience with it. So every herb that we had, and these were not great samples, we'd bite off a little piece, uh, take off a little piece, and put off in our mouth. And so we looked at each other with aloe, aloe vera. I remember this very distinctly. We both looked at each other, and we both put it on our tongue. And within seconds, we're both disrupting class in the middle of class, going, oh, wah! trying to get it off our tongue. It was the most vile, wretched, bitterest thing I had ever tasted. We're both just like, oh my God, and you're drinking lots of fluids and trying to get that taste out of our mouth. After that, we were a little bit more judicious about the herbs that we tasted. I, I do not recall actually tasting uh, flying squirrel excrement. Um, there were a few others, some of the animal products we probably didn't do. Um, so we're a little bit more circumspect in our, in our herb choices, but I still, we still tasted most of the herbs, uh, but that was quite an experience. So yes, it has a potent taste, very potent taste. Having said that, I've tasted the juice quite a bit, you know, on occasion and, uh, it's quite pleasant. No issues with just a regular juice. Um, my mom swore by the juice, by the way, she loved it for her for her digestive, whenever her stomach was acting up, it was that. And the other thing that when it was particularly bad, she used aloe vera juice quite frequently. It was particularly bad, we'd use, um, she used some Chinese herbs, baojiwan, um, which is similar to curing pills, if you're familiar with that. Uh, and those really helped her if, if her stomach was bad. And it actually helped her, both of those helped her as she was dealing with cancer and, and some of the effects of that. So that was very helpful. So anyway, so that's aloe vera juice, personally. So there was always some, you know, it was always some that I gave. My mom lived a few minutes away from me, so I was always able to get some if I was, I needed, which I didn't, I rarely used it, but I did occasionally, so, yeah. All right, let's talk about some commentary uh, about the herb. So the books will have commentary. Bensky usually has a pretty good uh, uh, commentary on each of the herbs uh, and, and very useful and, and, and uh, based on texts. So he, they do have a fairly substantial commentary on this herb. And it says, very bitter and very cold. Lu Hui is yin by nature, moistening in texture, sinking and downward directing. Now, I want to remind you, this is from Bensky. So this is that, that resin of the outer cortex. It's not the gel. So continuing. Entering the yang brightness channels, it drains fire and unblocks stool, dries dampness and kills parasites. Here it is appropriate for habitual constipation, constipation due to clumped heat in the intestine, vertigo, red eyes, restless insomnia, and abdominal pain due to bowel parasites. 
Entering the terminal yin channels, particularly the liver, it cools the liver, clears heat, and thus treats liver channel heat from excess causing anger and irritability, fright, palpitations, and convulsions associated with constipation. Applied externally, it resolves toxicity and treats sores. Treasury, the Treasury of Words on the Materia Medica, a textbook you know, of, of, uh, of uh, earlier origin, observes that it is an herb to cool the liver and kill parasites. Whenever an illness involves the liver and there is heat, it can be used without the slightest doubt. This is all still part of the Bensky commentary, and it continues. This substance works primarily by irritating the intestine, and its use may therefore be accompanied by colics. That's um, painful spasms. It is also excreted through the breast milk and can act as a purgative for the breastfeeding infant. It is usually used in pill form together with other herbs. Among its three actions, cooling the liver and relieving constipation, constipation are primary, while its ability to kill parasites is rather mild. I want you to keep that in mind, the rather mild aspect of... Uh, killing parasites, because we're going to get the opposite in a different commentary coming up soon. So Chen Chen didn't have much of a commentary. They, they, they simply say the classic texts state that Lu Hui can be used to treat overdose of Bado uh, or Fructus Crotonus, which is a harsh expellent and under Bensky. I don't know what it's called under um, Chen Chen. That, that's for when you really need to get the stool out. So if you have an overdose of that, Lu Hui can be used to treat that, which is interesting because it has similar effects. Um, but there you go. And then Holmes says the herb resin is the strongest of all anthroquinone purgatives. We're going to talk about anthroquinones in just a moment. Anthroquinone purgatives, for this reason, it is use, its use as a purgative should be used only as a last resort. He also says is anthelmintic, which means anti-worm, and antifungal properties are significant. So we remember we said it's not, you know, Bensky said it's not great for parasites, but apparently it's it's good for fungi and, and worms here. Under his monograph about the gel, he says the gel, so that was the resin. Now the gel is very effective agent for external use where moisture protection, cooling, soothing, and disinfecting are needed. So it's really good for wound care traditionally. So that's some of the commentary. Uh, Bensky does have one comparison with an interesting, uh, well, with a, one of my favorite herbs, actually. He compares Lu Hui to Senafolium fanchae. So this is uh, Senna, uh, if you're familiar with Senna leaf. So both herbs are bitter and cold, draining heat and relieving constipation from accumulated heat that dries the intestine. However, Lu Hui cools the liver and also kills parasites, and is thus the appropriate choice when constipation is related to liver heat or abdominal parasites. Fanchae, or the folium senna, drains downward and mobilizes water and can thus be used for ascites. A small dose strengthens the spleen and dissolves food stagnation. That would be a small dose. You don't want a huge dose of that. In excessive doses, both herbs can cause painful, colicky diarrhea. So that's not good. Again, that colic is that sort of, um, another term for it, which we're going to mention is griping. It's, it's actually an older term. Um, is that sort of, it's like it just, everything just kind of seizes a little bit and it's painful. That's the colic. 
And so colicky diarrhea, we've, we've probably all experienced it at some point, not a fun thing to have. And these herbs can certainly cause that. So we want to be cautious about them. Uh, Bensky also only talks about one combination of this herb, uh, and that's between uh, this Luhui and Quisqualis fructus or Shirjunza. This is not an herb I've ever used, tradition, you know, Chinese medicine. It is in the books. Um, part of it is because it's part of the, the, uh, the uh, dispel parasites category, which is not a category of herbs I've used uh, you know, extensively. I'm sure I've used one or two of the herbs in that category, but most of them because I live in a nice, clean, uh, uh, Western, uh, you know, um, uh, nation, there, there isn't a lot of parasites to, and, uh, to worry about. So I don't use that often. And when you do have parasites, most people will go and get uh, medicine, you know, drugs to, to deal with it. So I haven't used these herbs quite a bit. So, but this is a combination of this, of Quisqualis, Fructus, Shijunza, and Luhui. So Shijunza is sweet and warm, while Luhui is very bitter and cold. In the large intestine, Luhui drains fire and unblocks stool, dries dampness and kills parasites, and in the liver channel, it cools the liver and clears heat. But among these three actions, cooling the liver and relieving constipation are primary. Its ability to kill parasites is rather mild. Together, their intestinal parasite expelling action is much increased, and there is an ability to drain heat and reduce accumulation. Hence, it is appropriate for parasitic accumulation in the intestines associated with constipation due to overabundant heat. So that's where this combination would be useful. Let's talk about some biomedical indications. We've discussed a lot of them. Uh, we've discussed many common uses of this herb, and many are biomedical in nature. Chen Chen says the outer latex resin is laxative, antibiotic, and anti-neoplastic. So anti-neoplastic means anti-cancer. Um, so it can help uh, malignancies and things along those lines, though it's not traditionally used for that as far as I know. Um, Holmes adds anthelmintic and antifungal. So anthelmintic, uh, again, means anti-worm uh, and antifungal, so antifungus. And as we mentioned, the gel is antibacterial antiviral, anti-inflammatory, and has laxative effects, according to PR, or herbal medicines. Okay, there was a good amount of science around this since it's such a widely used herb. There were a lot of articles. I tend to, when I see that, I tend to stick with review articles in general. There were a bunch of those, um, some stronger than others. So a review of the use of aloe vera in dermatological conditions found it may be helpful for genital herpes, uh, psoriasis, uh, human papillomavirus, HPV, that's genital warts, uh, seborrheic dermatitis, which is another name for eczema, aphthos, uh, stomatitis, those are sores in the, in the mouth of a particular type, Xerosis, uh, which means dryness. Uh, lichen planus, which is a specific type of, of uh, dermatological disorder. Frostbite, burn, wound healing, and inflammation. There was no evidence of its use in prevention uh, for radiation-induced injuries and has no sunburn or suntan protection. So that's an interesting one. So that's what I was always taught uh, because I, I tend toward sunburn. So I was always, you know, like the gel is good for sunburns, and it does feel good. I think it's probably, a, a, it soothes uh, quite a bit. 
but the science is fairly clear that it doesn't help uh, the actual healing of sunburns or protect against sunburns in any particular way. And the other one is prevention for radiation-induced injuries. So this is an interesting one. Specifically, they are talking about radiation-induced um, injuries in like uh, using radiation and can to, to treat cancers or things along those lines. One of the interesting uses of this was in, uh, in uh, Nagasaki and Hiroshima after the atomic bombs. Uh, this was used to kind of help uh, with the, the sores, the radiation sores that happened. Um, one source, which was not scientific, said it, didn't, it, it did help with that, and that was part of the reason why it's, it's uh, aided popularity in the U.S., but uh, other sources uh, didn't specifically talk about uh, Hiroshima or Nagasaki and did say that, in general, radiation-induced injuries were not helped by aloe vera. So, I, you know, my, my feeling is it probably doesn't help the, the actual healing of radiation-induced injuries, but it might feel good uh, on those burns, and therefore it may still have a place, but it doesn't necessarily help in the grand scheme of things. So it may help the patient feel a little bit better, but it doesn't actually help more than that. Another review article found oral administration of aloe vera might be a useful adjunct for lowering blood glucose in diabetic patients, as well as for reducing blood lipid levels in patients with hyperlipidemia. So those are uh, cholesterol levels and, and, and triglyceride levels and hyperlipidemia. So that's an interesting, this was by Vogler and Ernst. If you're not familiar with Ernst, Ernst pops up in a lot of articles on herbal medicine. And I think he's a really good scientist. He tends to be a little bit on the skeptical side, which I kind of like in a scientist. Um, so he generally doesn't, you know, when you see an article by Ernst, I feel like, uh, you know, generally it's, it's going to be a little bit negative on the herbal medicine. So the fact that they said this might be useful as an adjunct, so in addition to other things in lowering blood glucose and for reducing uh, blood lipid levels, that's a pretty big uh, endorsement by, by Ernst in particular. So um, interesting on that, on that role of science here. According to the University of Rochester Medical Center Health Encyclopedia, medically valid uses include use as an astringent to seal off cuts or scrapes, laxative, and to increase the turnover rate of collagen to help wounds heal. They also include several claims they considered unsubstantiated. That doesn't mean they don't work. They just don't have the science backing them up. These include soothing stomach irritation to treat calluses and corns, varicose veins, infections, and arthritis, and applying the gel from a freshly broken leaf to minor burns, scrapes, lacerations, or sunburn for relief. So again, not substantiated. In fact, we, we saw one article that said there is no evidence that it helps for sunburn, but I do think it helps. I, I, I remember, I don't know, in my teens, I think I got sunburn and put some on and it felt good. So um, generally, I'm, I burn really easily. I'm really cautious about getting sunburn, so it's been a while. But this does bring up something that we haven't talked about yet, which is this is one of those herbs that's easy to grow almost in any any sort of uh, um, uh, weather and, and sand and so um, soil, I should say, rather than sand. And so I, this is something you can certainly have around the house, either in small planters or outside in your yard in, in California where I'm at. And um, we're trying to, you know, use more drought-resistant succulents. This uh, isn't quite in that range of thing, and I don't know how much water it does, but it certainly looks in the same area of succulents. 
And so uh, it's definitely something you can grow and have around for medicinal uses as needed. And here are some of the reasons for it. And, and I know it's widely used by a lot of herbalists in that context. So uh, there's something about the fresh plant. You just break it off and you can start smearing it wherever you want to go uh, for, for wounds and stuff. So, um, and it's supposed to be antiseptic. So it's supposed to be pretty good um, straight off the thing. I might wash off the outer leaves before I did something like that. But I certainly uh, wouldn't worry about infections or something along those lines for the most part. Um, you know, if it was a deep one, I'd probably be a little bit more worried. But if it's rel relatively superficial, I wouldn't be worried about it at all. So let's talk about the contents. And I told you we were going to talk about anthroquinones. And, and that, in, in Lu these anthroquinones in Luhui seem to be the main constituents for its at laxative action. It's actually considered a stimulant laxative, um, quite strong in its use. As we mentioned, Luhui is, is quite a strong uh, a laxative because of these. It also contains anthranol, a specific anthroquinone, which is considered to have a particularly strong action. So not only does it have a lot of anthroquinones, it also has very strong anthroquinones that are, that are above and beyond other anthroquinone-containing herbs. This is one of the stronger laxatives uh, out there. I think uh, we talked about Panchaye, and I think that's stronger, considered stronger, but this is right there. You know, sort of thing. So other anthroquinones that it has include aloe and modin, aloin, uh, aloin. So again, whenever there's a word that includes the word of the of the herb, that means it was probably first discovered in, in researching this herb. Uh, there's isobarbaloin, uh, aloin, yep, seven hydroxy aloin, uh, homo nat, nat, nat aloin. Uh, chrysophenol, chrysophenol glucoside, uh, alanin, allosapinols, isolutherol glucoside, and isoxanthorin. Uh, it also contains the flavonoids quercetin, which we see a lot in, uh, in, our, in our herbs, um, camphorinol and rutin, and many sugars and organic acids. Uh, and one um, that I said said several vitamins as well. So uh, lots of interesting contents to this uh, and, and useful reasons for it. Let's talk about drug-herb interactions. There are numerous specific drug-herb interactions, but none are more than D-level evidence. So I don't usually get into D anything that's D-level evidence. D-level evidence means it was shown to have an interaction in animals, shown to have an interaction in test tubes or in, in vitro. And or um, it, it's uh, that's also called bench research. And or uh, it's just expert opinion, which sometimes is useful, and sometimes it's just one expert saying this shouldn't be there. So I'm not a huge fan of D level evidence. Once we get into C level evidence, we start to get into human level evidence. So nothing there. Um, APA's botanical safety handbook. Uh, APA being the uh, American uh, Herb Producer Association's Botanical Safety Handbook, which I think is a, a fantastic resource, says it's interaction class A, its safest category. So there are not a lot of interactions. Now, uh, there was a lot in several of the books. They talked about not using these with glycosides, uh, digitalis glycosides, which are for um, uh, arrhythmias. Now, first of all, I'm, I don't think most herbs should be used with uh, uh, cardiac glycosides because they are really heavy-duty drugs and I don't want to be blamed for any problems. And if something 
is a problem, they die. So I'm not a big fan of using herbs with cardiac glycosides to begin with. Uh, so, but a lot of the evidence for not using this with digitalis in the cardiac glycosides is not strong evidence. It's more opinions. Um, I agree with that opinion, but um, it doesn't play a huge role in the overall safety and drug-herb interactions here. A Google Scholar search showed several studies looking at cytochrome P450 and P glycoprotein interactions with only one with in vivo evidence showing no P glycoprotein interference. So there were several that showed some cytochrome P450 interactions. One actually said it inhibited uh, a couple, I think 3A4 and 2D6, and another one said the exact opposite, said it induced those. So I don't know where to go with that. And all of and none of those were actually in humans. I think um, they may have had some animals, but most of it was bench research. So very poor evidence with cytochrome P450 or P glycoprotein. But the one that was actually in vivo, which means in humans, um, showed no P glycoprotein interference. So I'm not worried about those. And the cytochrome P450 and P glycoprotein, if you're not familiar with it, are just some of the markers we use for potential drug-herb interactions for higher risk of a drug-herb interaction. So it doesn't seem to have any of those. But there are some concerns regarding this herb. Bensky and his team say bitterness and coldness by nature are contraindicated for spleen and stomach deficiency. Taking them will cause continuous diarrhea. It is forbidden in children, those who are deficient in the spleen and stomach, those with no appetite, and those with diarrhea. And these were from the harm and benefit in Materia Medica. This is a Chinese book. The following adverse effects have been reported. Nausea, vomiting, epistasics, which is uh, uh, nose bleeding, abdominal pain, diarrhea, bloody stool, hematuria or blood in the urine, albinuria, which is albumin, a protein in the, in the urine, and after long-term administration, colitis, which is an inflammation of the colon. The risk of toxic, toxic effects from long-term use is similar to that of other anthroquinone-containing herbs, such as Cenofolium, Fanchaye, and Ray Radix at Rhizoma, Da Huang. Those are all in similar category of herbs. Skin contact can cause allergic skin reactions, but it's, you know that's always a potential. But again, it's generally good. Uh, it has a lot of uses topically. Uh, still under concerns, Chen Chen says Lu Hui is contraindicated during pregnancy and in cases of deficiency in cold in the spleen and stomach. And Brandon Wiseman agrees, saying this, this herb is contraindicated in pregnancy and in spleen stomach vacuity with low food intake and sloppy stool. So Gardner and McGuffin, that's that APA's, uh, APA's uh, safety handbook, give the resident a safety class of 2B... 2C and 2D, which indicates there are restrictions in the use of the herb. Class 2B indicates an herb should not be used during pregnancy. 2C means it should not be used during nursing. And 2D means other restrictions. In this case, it means several gastrointestinal conditions, including instructional, excuse me, intestinal obstruction, abdominal pain of unknown origin, inflammation of the intestines and hemorrhoids, and liver disease, kidney dysfunction, severe dehydration during menstruation in children under 12 and not, and use not in excess of eight days. So those are all uh, restrictions based on some of the evidence uh, of, of that. And then they go to the gel is considered safety class one, the safest class, meaning it is safe for appropriate uses. So the gel, pretty darn safe. The resin, as we've kind of been discussing, has some issues. We just want to make sure that we're not overstepping uh, we're not misusing that.
Grunewald and his team, which is the PDR for herbal medicines, agrees with the concerns about gastrointestinal conditions and not using in pregnancy, breastfeeding, or in children under 12. They do talk about the potential for griping or the colicky abdominal pain. Prolonged juice can lead to significant loss of electrolytes as well as other rare concerns with minimal evidence. So they have some, they don't have a lot of evidence for other concerns, but there were some, some interesting concerns. Like one said it could actually cause cancer, but I, no one else mentioned that. So I don't think that's a, a huge concern. This is specific. Uh, actually, colon cancer was the, the cancer. So again, if you're not using it long-term, which you should not be, um, I don't think there's a huge issue there. There was, in the, in the scientific literature, there was one case study of a 57-year-old woman getting acute hepatitis concurrent with starting a regimen of aloe vera, which stopped as soon as supplementation ended. So that was one study in 2005. Um, it's in humans. Something for us to be aware, about, aware of, but I'm not super worried about it. Uh, because she was on other drugs and stuff too. And, and they often will do this. They'll say it's this herb because when we stopped it, it stopped. Um, but they didn't stop anything else. So why wasn't it, if they had stopped something else, would that have stopped it too? So I don't know. So that was our, our Spurbs Herbs podcast for today. Uh, in summary, what an interesting herb used in all, almost all major herbal traditions, mainly as a laxative but also topically for a variety of dermatological conditions, depending on which form is used, the juice, gel, or resin of its cortex. However, there are safety concerns, especially of the resin, and it should be used for short periods of time and with appropriate fermentations. And we started a new conversation about the greatest doctors of all time with one of, if not the greatest, Galen. So we're going to continue a discussion of, of uh, the great of some great doctors. I'm sure I'm not going to do it all in a row, though next time I will talk about Avicenna. In fact, let's talk about our next episode. In our next episode, we'll be exploring a Chinese single herb, one of my favorites, Yi Ren, or Chinese pearl barley. This is a food substance. I love putting it in my kanji, but also a mild but important herb for draining damp. And we will continue our discussion of great doctors by looking at Avicenna, or uh, more traditionally, Ibn Sina, and his contributions to modern medicine. So please don't miss our next exciting episode. And thank you very much for getting through this podcast. If you like this podcast, please do us a, a huge favor. Give us a five-star rating in your favorite podcast app. That would be fantastic. Thank you. We're on all the, we should be on all the major podcast apps. If you find one that we're not, please let us know and we'll get on it. But if you put a five-star rating in there, that would just help us immensely. And you can get this. Uh, this particular uh, podcast and 30% off our Drug Herb Series CEUs and NCCOM, uh, so Continuing Education Units and National Certification Commission of Acupuncture and MSN Professional Development Activities at www.integrativemedicinecouncil.org. And if you want that 30% off, put a slash 32 and you'll get that 30% off. You can always get in touch with me at drgreg at spurbsherbs.com or at our website, www.spurbsherbs.com and again that's it thank you very much and as always the proceeding was presented by Dr. Greg Sperber we would like to thank Janelle for all her support and everybody else who contributed to this program Janelle. Janelle. Timothy Dobbins Roger Campbell 